historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. My name is Itai Tenenbaum, and this is episode number six of War with Hamas. So again, a little bit about myself. I was born in Tel Aviv, where I lived for the first part of my childhood. At 11 years old, I moved to the United States, actually to the area of Washington, D.C. At 18, I moved back to Israel, served as a tank commander in Lebanon during the 1980s. That was the first Lebanon war. My reserve duty was mainly in Gaza, but it was very different than today. I have a small boutique Israel tour business, and now I've started and maintain the Inside Israel podcast. In this episode, episode number six, I would like to tell you about three main topics dealing with the war at this point. The first is the Russian involvement. The president of Russia, Putin, had said in his voice that hundreds of thousands were killed in Gaza. Hundreds of thousands? Even Hamas, which always inflates their numbers tremendously, doesn't claim that hundreds of thousands were killed. Once, Putin defended Israel even said he was committed to Israel's safety. He was a friend of Netanyahu's. What happened? We'll take a look at this. The second topic that I'd like to discuss with you is about the actual battles inside of Gaza. Now, the Israeli Defense Forces are keeping what we call a fog of war. Their take is too much information is not good. And again, we'll talk about this and take a look inside to see what has been revealed about the actual battles. The third topic is about the head of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah's speech. On Friday, November 3rd, Hassan Nasrallah gave a much-anticipated speech. Well, it was anticipated mostly by the Hamas and other terror organizations. The Israeli government and the Israeli Defense Forces made it clear that if he declares an all-out war, we will devastate Hezbollah and Lebanon. So what did he say in his speech? Or rather yet, what didn't he say? We're going to look into that as well. And finally, I'm going to tell you just a couple of stories about Israeli heroes. But first, an update. And I want to start my update with telling you a little bit about the interrogation of terrorists. On October 7th, hundreds of Hamas terrorists, Hamas butchers, were captured. The Shin Bet, also known as the Shabak, or Israel's General Security Services, comparable to the American FBI, was called to action. In other words, Secret Service intelligence officers, and let's be blunt, highly trained and experienced interrogators, were called to action. These interrogators know Arabic fluently, with all the slang and the nuances. They're immersed in Palestinian culture. Across from the interrogator sits someone pretending to have a human image, a monster who just murdered, burnt, perhaps raped, and in some cases, abuse the bodies of the victims. The interrogator needs to break him, mentally. And it's urgent, very urgent. Time is of the essence. The interrogator needs to uncover accurate intelligence information. Like, where are the Hamas strongholds? Where are the rocket launchers? The tunnels? Perhaps the butchers know something about where the hostages are held. Like in the case of Ori Magidish, the young female soldier who was rescued by Israeli special ops. The job of the interrogator is to find every detail, every possible weakness, 
every piece of information that can be cross-referenced. The interrogations are conducted according to the law, which prohibits physical torture, and we know that physical torture does not necessarily bring the desired result. So at this point, I want to tell you a couple words about physical torture in Israeli law. And let's start by saying this. Non-democracies have no dilemma whatsoever. They use methods of torture, extreme physical torture, to extract information from prisoners. Often the prisoners give false information just so that the torture stops. That's nothing new. Democracies, on the other hand, at times, face a difficult dilemma when it comes to impending and immediate mass casualty terror attacks. Israel is the only democracy on earth that actually dealt with the issue on a judicial level. In 1987, a judicial commission headed by former president of the Supreme Court, Judge Landau, recommended that Shashin Bet, again, the Israeli Secret Service, interrogations be allowed to use under close supervision a moderate measure of physical pressure. This would be in cases where non-physical psychological pressure does not work on detainees that are believed to possess knowledge of an impending terror attack. Now, what does that mean? What is moderate measure of physical pressure? In Israel, it was known as shaking someone in a rough manner. Now, this is a bit vague. How does one measure moderate physical pressure? So, in 1999, the Israeli Supreme Court ruled that the Shin Bet interrogators could not use physical means that were not reasonable and fair, and that violated the the detainee's human dignity. It basically canceled any form of physical shaking or anything that resembled it. Still, the Supreme Court of Israel allowed certain techniques, such as sleep deprivation or loud music. But if they were the byproduct of the interrogation and not means in and of themselves. Look, Israel didn't shy away from dealing with this issue. We didn't find some off-coast island where Israeli law doesn't apply and carry out forms of torture. Other democracies just never dealt with the issue on a judicial level. America dealt with this issue on numerous occasions, but mainly after 9-11. At the time, former CIA director George Tenet argued to justify a form of pressure on detainees. And I want to quote George Tenet when he said, the program, he called it a program, um, led to the capture of Al-Qaeda leaders and took them off the battlefield. He continued and said it saved thousands of American lives. Let's not be naive, or rather yet, let's be clear. Almost all democracies are engaged in a troubling, burdensome dilemma if facing an immediate mass casualty terror attack. The dilemma is real. Is the detainee well-being more important than the masses about to be slain in a terror attack? Imagine that one of the 19 terrorists responsible for 9-11 was caught on the night of 8-11. All I'm saying is that this is a real tough dilemma for democracies. Israel Hassan, who served in the Shin Bet for 23 years and reached the level of deputy head of the Shin Bet, says that the interrogations are conducted according to the law. Again, loud music and sleep deprivation are allowed as a tool to break the terrorists just before the interrogation. If that helped to save one life, for instance, the life of a Rimegidish, then yeah, the butcher can sleep later. Hassan also told us that there is a saying among the interrogators. There's a concept that says, if a lemon was smart, it would give all its juice without being squeezed. 
That is not to say that you allow them to relax or even rest. The goal is to cause them to be in constant state of stress, of course in preparation for the interrogation. Film footage that can even be seen on YouTube shows the Hamas butchers immediately after their capture sitting in a large circle on the ground, blindfolded. The loudspeakers are blasting loud, annoying kid songs by an artist named Many Mantra. My sincere apologize to Many for using the word annoying, but he himself said in interviewed on TV, he said, anything to help the war effort. Now, what about the Shin Bet interrogators? They were asked how they feel sitting across from a murderous monster. Ophir Malka, former Shin Bet interrogator, said, and I quote, you have to detach yourself emotionally from the situation and enter the mode of an analytical researcher. You have to look a person in the eyes, disconnect the emotions, and investigate. Ben Hanan, another interrogator, emphasized, if the interrogated asks for a cup of coffee and a cigarette, and that will help him confess, you give him a cup of coffee and a cigarette. If what works for him as a warm, friendly interrogator, then be one. And that is even if you feel inside yourself a tremendous storm of emotion. The goal is to get the information. We now know that part of the success of the war on Hamas has to do with information being given by these captured butchers. The second update I would like to tell you about is about the battles that are raging inside of Gaza. And the first question is, what are the main threats to the Israeli Defense Forces? The first threat is snipers, sniping from tall buildings and other locations. We need to locate them and eliminate them. The Air Force, the Israeli Air Force, is guided by the ground troops and is able to successfully eliminate the snipers. The second threat are booby-trapped bombs on roads and buildings inside carcasses of dead animals. I personally saw one of those while serving in Lebanon in the 80s. Placing bombs in cars, etc. IEDs, improvised explosive devices. The U.S. troops face those in Afghanistan and Iraq. We are facing them in Gaza. The Israeli Handasa, which is the Israeli Engineer Corps, is crucial for this. They discover the bombs and dismantle them. The third threat, and is a major threat, is the anti-tank missiles. These are fired by one or two people at a tank or an APC. An APC is an armored personnel carrier. The missiles are lethal. Apparently Hamas has fired hundreds of missiles and have had some success. But compared to the hundreds of missiles being fired, they've only had minor success. The reason for that is because Israel has an answer called the wind jacket. The wind jacket is a defense system somewhat similar to Iron Dome. That is to say, the objective is to shoot down the shoulder missile that is about to hit your armored vehicle. The wind jacket includes both jamming systems and physical interceptors, which destroy the incoming missiles. It also has a number of sensors guided by radar with four antenna panels mounted all around the vehicle to provide full protection from all directions. The wind jacket is only activated if it detects that an incoming missile will hit the tank or the APC. The fourth threat entails ambushes and raids by the enemy. Hamas hides on the ground and waits for the IDF troops to pass them. Once the troops pass them, they climb out of their tunnels and try to shoot at the troops from behind. Israeli troops are very well aware of this. 
we set up decoys and ambushes and are able to take out this threat. The fifth and greatest threat are the tunnels. Hamas has an entire underground military complex, probably about 500 square kilometers, which is about 320 miles, roughly. Reuters News came out with a post where they claimed that Israeli security sources interviewed by them told them that the IDF soldiers on the ground are gathering information about the tunnel network without actually entering them. Now, how are they doing this? The claim is that robots and sniffer dogs are deployed to locate tunnel openings. This is in order to get an understanding or a view of the tunnels before the special forces deal with them. Thus far, 130 tunnel openings have been located and destroyed. The intelligence picture that is coming together is that Hamas built a city of tunnels that stretches for hundreds of miles. Some of the tunnels reach a depth of up to 300 feet in some areas. Many of the tunnels are used by Hamas command centers as well as rocket launchers. The tunnels are located around schools, hospitals, and humanitarian institutions in the northern Gaza, including the well-known Shifa Hospital. Now, the Israeli soldiers are already near the Shifa Hospital, which is the symbol of Hamas rule. But all along the roads to the hospital are terrorist infrastructures, and again, Hamas snipers, Hamas in civilian clothing, launching anti-tank missiles. You see people dressed in jeans and a t-shirt, all of a sudden pulling out weapons and firing. Our ground troops are locating on a daily basis many amounts of attempted ambushes. So, this will take time. In these areas, the fighting against Hamas is expected to be particularly difficult. Think about it. Fighting inside a city with apartment buildings and civilians remaining in it is not at all similar to any other fighting. The IDF ground troops have opened up humanitarian corridors for tens of thousands of Palestinians to flee to the southern Gaza, which they've been urged to do since the beginning of this war. And lastly, the morale of the IDF soldiers is extremely high. They are focused on their mission and they will accomplish it. Okay, so now I want to take more of a global look. And as I mentioned, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, said publicly that hundreds of thousands were killed in Gaza. I also mentioned that even the Hamas doesn't claim that. Now, in the past, Putin had said that he's committed to Israel's safety. But then came the war with Ukraine. Putin claims that Israel cooperated with Ukraine, though Israel really didn't do much for Ukraine. But as far as Putin was concerned, Israel, the United States, and other Western nations were his enemies. So, after the Hamas attacks on October 7th, Putin didn't even condemn the Hamas butchery. He did invite the chief rabbi of Moscow and the mufti of Moscow for a short photo op, but then he took a very anti-Israel, anti-Semitic turn. Putin hosted a Hamas delegation, even though the Hamas is holding at least eight people with Russian passports. We also all saw what happened in Dagestan, an attempted lynch. They were looking for Jews, the rioters. They damaged parts of the airport. Those arrested were held for a couple of days and let go without any further punishment. The police in Dagestan, again, a part of Russia, allowed the rioters to go through the Flamingo Hotel and search for Jews. They literally went room to room. The head of the hotel had stated, no Israelis or Jews will ever stay in my hotel. Guys, the context is that Russia 
has almost always been anti-Semitic. The pogroms, the protocols of the Erdos of Zion, which was a document written by the Tsar's secret police claiming the Jews want to control the world. The majority of American Jews, their grandparents, great-grandparents, and others migrated from the former Russia to the United States. Now look at Chechnya, another Russian strong ally. Ramzan Kadyrov, which is the president of Chechnya and also a puppet doll to Putin. He said that the Palestinians Muslims are undergoing a genocide. And he said this, if Putin gives the order, our fighters will fight along with the Palestinians. Just a reminder that these Chechenians are the ones butchering Ukrainians in the war against Ukraine. So why did Russia choose sides? So first of all, Russia and North Korea are allies. Now, why do I mention North Korea? King Jong-un attended a summit with Vladimir Putin two months ago. That was in September of 2023. It was a week-long trip to Russia that most likely focused on weapons exchanges and other cooperation initiatives. Um, North Korea is a big enemy of Israel. And as a matter of fact, North Korea was building the Syrians, a nuclear reactor, which Israel destroyed in 2007. A second example of why Russia aligned against Israel is that Russia and Syria are allies, and again, Syria is an, is, is an enemy of Israel. The Russians have major bases in Syria, mainly granting them access to the Mediterranean Sea. The Russian intervention in Syria in September of 2015 provided decisive air power to Syrian and Iranian background forces, expanding Bashar Assad, that's the president of Syria's, territorial control and solidifying his regime hold on power. And again, Syria is an enemy of Israel. Russia, unlike the Western countries, never labeled Hamas or Hezbollah as terror organizations. Furthermore, Russia and Iran are allies. Attack drones are supplied by Iran to Russia. It's a close relationship. Iran took a strong pro-Russian stand on Ukraine. The war with Hamas helps Putin to solidify an anti-West, anti-American access. He wants to paint the U.S. as the responsible party for the trouble in the Middle East. Hence, Israel and the U.S., that are allies, are the enemy. And finally, natural gas. As we know, Putin supplies oil and gas to Europe. Europe is looking for an alternative since the Ukrainian war. Saudi Arabia is an alternative. Israel could potentially supply a pipeline from Saudi Arabia to Europe. That is, if Israel and Saudi sign a peace treaty or even normalize relations. Putin is worried about this. He's worried about losing the European client altogether. Of course, also, the more gas channel to Europe means more supply, which means less demand, bringing down the prices. Russia is dependent on selling their gas and oil for funding the war against Ukraine and for their economy at large. All in all, Putin is definitely interested in world focus to be on Israel and the Middle East and thus divert attention from his war in Ukraine. And now to the speech of Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah. So on Friday, November 3rd, just a few days ago, the head of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, gave a much-anticipated speech. And as I mentioned, it was anticipated mainly by Hamas and other terror organizations. Hamas was hoping, praying rather yet, for Hezbollah to open a significant northern front with Israel. Thus far, Nasrallah has conducted low attrition warfare on the border with Israel, with daily provocations firing dozens of anti-tank missiles 
at IDF posts and Israeli communities. As a result, seven Israeli soldiers and one civilian were killed. It is believed that Hezbollah has suffered around 100 deaths in Israeli retaliatory strikes in Lebanon and in Syria. Three weeks into the fighting, and Nasrallah gave a speech, again, the much-anticipated speech by his allies. So what did he say? The first thing he said, or rather yet explained, was that the sacrifice of his fighters, like those of the martyrs in Gaza, in other words, the terrorists that were killed, did not really die, but rather are now in the next world enjoying all the goodness. He continued and said that Hamas maintained secrecy and not a single factor in the Makawama, which means axis of resistance, knew about it. In other words, Hamas went off on its own. He went out of his way to stress that Iran supports the resistance factions, but the factions are the ones who decide their policies and actions, which means total denial that Iran was behind this war. You can be sure that that part of the speech was written by the Iranians. Nasrallah emphasized that this is a war of the Palestinians over Palestine only, and that it was not a decision of Iran's leaders. So he's basically trying to clean the Iranians off of this and saying that he's not necessarily going to participate so highly. The independence of the struggle, he continued and said, has been preserved for the Palestinians since the Ayatollah Khomeini and is preserved even today by Khamenei. Nasrallah also lied in his speech. Two major lies. The first was when he lied about who killed the children, the women, those who were raped and burnt. He claimed it was Israelis that did it and not Hamas. The second lie was when he said that Hamas is winning the war. This lie serves as interest. If Hamas is winning the war, then he doesn't need to come to the rescue. What this lie actually shows is that Nasrallah doesn't want to get overly involved. He understands the consequences of war with Israel. A war which Israel will let loose in Lebanon will be on the verge of destruction. To sum it up, the direct threat to Israel in his speech was vague. Nasrallah said that the Hezbollah campaign will take place in accordance with Israel's policy against Gaza. Sounds like an empty threat, especially since Israel is deep in Gaza and has declared several times it will take away the fighting capabilities as well as the rule from Hamas. Having said this, if there's one thing that we learned from October 7th is never underestimate your enemy. I want to end with telling you a couple stories about heroes during October 7th. The first is a family, mother and father. Mother's name is Lishai, father's name is Omri, with two girls, Roni, two years old, and Alma, six months old. Lishai told us that when the rocket buried on Nachal Oz, their kibbutz, was at six in the morning, the girls, Roni, who was two years old again, and Alma, who was six months old, were sleeping in their room. Omri, the father, took them to the safe room and they waited for the rocket barrage to end. When there was a lull in the fire, Lishai went to bring the girls the snack, a snack called Bamba, which is a Israeli peanut snack, and also prepared them a bottle. But then they saw on the WhatsApp messages that there were terrorists inside the kibbutz houses. At first they thought people were just hysterical, but then they started hearing gunshots all around them. Lishai says, We realized this was serious. Around turn 30, it was suddenly quiet, and we thought they had left. But then we heard the shower windows shatter, and they came in. Omri grabbed two knives, which he took to the safe room. The terrorists started shouting for him to open the safe room door, 
and brought with them a 16-year-old boy from the kibbutz named Tomer. Tomer asked us to open the door and said that if we didn't do so, they would hurt him. So we opened the door. Then the terrorist ordered us to the kitchen and Roni, our two-year-old, was left sleeping in the safe room. We begged them to let us bring her and Tomer took her in his arms. They sat us down in the living room and then we noticed that they were preparing to kill us. But for some reason, they decided to take us to another family who lived diagonally across from us. When we arrived, we saw the parents and two children were there. The third child, 18 years old daughter, was murdered by them. In the neighbor's kitchen, we sat on shattered glass. Around 1 p.m., the terrorists brought two more women, American citizens. One of them spoke in English. She hoped that the fact that she was American would help her. Around 1.30 p.m., the terrorists demanded that Omri and the father of the other family get up, and then they handcuffed them. They took the car keys, and after three minutes, we saw them drive away. I told Omri four sentences. I love you. I'll take care of the girls. We're waiting for you, and don't be a hero. In other words, do what they say. It was then and only then that Roni, the two-year-old, who had been quiet the entire time, started yelling, I want my daddy, I want my daddy, and started running after them. I had to hold her, clutch her so tightly so that she doesn't run out. Lishai believes that Omri is alive. She and the girls are devastated, yearning for Omri's safe return to them. And finally, a story of one man, a young man, leading 200 people to safety. This young man's name starts with an A, and that's all I'll mention, since he serves in a defense missile system as a reservist. A was sure that he would spend a festive and fun weekend with his four friends in the music festival. At 6.29 in the morning, the ground shook while the people were dancing, and A says, I quickly realized that these were heavy and unusual launches from nearby Gaza. Then people started running. So we got into the car and started fleeing north. Then we ran into the Hamas gunmen who shot their guns in our direction. Their bullets got stuck in the car's engine. And others, others, other young people from a car nearby passed us shouting, make a U-turn. Meanwhile, hundreds of terrorists began to surround the music festival complex, murdering everyone in their path. The escape routes were blocked in huge traffic jams since the terrorists shot up the cars. Then I looked up and saw terrorists landing in our direction with motorized air vehicles. Someone shouted to find shelter, but I realized that this was a mistake, that the threat is different, much bigger. I ran towards the nearby orchard. As I did, a group of about 200 partygoers saw me. They were in panic. They had been drinking alcohol during the night, so I decided I would lead them to safety. While running, the bullets whizzed over our heads, and some of the people next to me were shot. I had to continue with those who survived because I was not armed, and it would not have helped if I had stopped to try to treat the casualties when the terrorists were running after us, firing at us the entire time. A continued and said, I remembered at once everything I had learned in the officer's course when I was on the IDF, leadership values and navigational ability. A led the group to hide in one of the nearby dried up creeks and ordered them to be quiet. He opened Google Maps to figure out which community was the closest. It was a city of Ofakim, which is about seven kilometers, roughly four miles away. A continues, 
I told everyone to follow me, to keep quiet, and not to go up the hills or any other high points. We ran first into the orchards. I felt like the Jewish partisans fleeing helplessly into the woods from the Nazis. We marched for what seemed like hours, and then we stumbled upon two Israeli policemen. The policemen had two 15-round pistols that they were supposed to protect us from armed terrorists with machine guns on vans. I tried to avoid advancing in the open field so as not to expose the group to the terrorists. When we saw Ofakim in front of us, I stopped for a moment because I received a push from Ynet, which is the online Israeli news, about a lot of terrorists who had also infiltrated and arrived in the town of Ofakim. So I turned left and looked on the map for a new safe place. Moshav Patish, a community, a small community, a Moshav, an agricultural Moshav. As we approached Moshav Patish, the people of Moshav saw us and raced towards us with their vans. This is despite the risk of the arrival of terrorists that were also near the Moshav. They loaded us into their SUVs as much as they could and gave us shelter, water, and food in their homes. We owe them a lot. They were amazing. A took a couple of days of resting in his home. Then he put on his uniform, did not tell his commanders at first about the traumatic experience he went through so that they won't tell him to stay at home. A is now taking a central part in the, of the defense of Israel's skies. He serves in the Chetz anti-ballistic missile defense system. I hope this episode was educational for you. And if yes, please share it as broadly as you can. The Inside Israel podcast needs your support. If you'd like to support us, go to insideisrael.fm, click on the support us button, and there's a link inside. The Inside Israel podcast can be listened to on Apple, Amazon, Google, Spotify, and other media.